Good morning and welcome to another edition of Five Alive. We're still here in Mahali, Punjab, Chandigarh, enjoying a beautiful day with background construction noise yet again. We're reading from John chapter 11, verses 35 through 44. We're going to be talking about a miracle that Jesus performs where he overcomes even death. And Xavier is going to read this passage of scripture for us today. Xavier. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for it has been, he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. This is the reading of God's word. Today I just want to kind of first start talking about emotions. Jesus, in this passage of scripture, especially since we went back a couple of verses, Jesus wept. And then again, he even more sorrowfully came to the tomb. Uh, we see the emotions, the, the sorrow, the anguish, the loss, the hurt, the pain, the feelings of separation, etc., that Jesus is expressing in this moment of real life. I mean, this is not just a one-time show that Jesus's sorrow is continuing uh, uh, to be shown to us or Jesus's emotions are being shown to us. He shows us a gladness. He shows us happiness. He shows us enjoying moments with his friends. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. And in this moment, at the death of his friend Lazarus, he has an emotional moment where he is weeping and yet he continues to weep again. I do not believe this to only be Jesus, the human scenario form, but that this is also God incarnate weeping. Why would Jesus weep over a friend of his? If he's God, if he knows what he's going to do in the future, if he knows that Lazarus was dead a couple of days ago and didn't start making his way there yet, why why so much emotion out of Jesus? Well, because he is 100% man in this moment as well. So this is a common emotion for man is sorrowfulness. And especially in the time of death and grieving, mm -hmm. even though he wasn't, I mean, he's there still like during the grieving period for the whole family. And so he's grieving with them because, you know, that's only natural because that's his best friend, one of his best friends. That's one of his closest friends that he knows. And he's dead, even though he does know he's going to raise him back to life. He's still sad that he's dead. Yes. I mean, death, does, just because someone comes back doesn't mean that it changes the sadness that happened beforehand. Right, right. So, but for the uh, analysis of a person who is so separated from their emotions, uh, there are people in this world who believe that they can separate themselves out of their emotional element in the time so that that way they can supersede those things. And they think that that is godliness. Mm -hmm. And yet in a moment that is so emotional of a friend dying, 
we see represented in Christ that that's not what God does. He doesn't supremely raise himself above the scenario or the situation, but he becomes fully a part of the emotional package of what's going on in that time. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's a, Lazarus is a young man. It's, it's like, how, how is he dead? Like, I mean, identifying in with, I don't like the word identify, but he identifies in the situation as you were saying, he is one, he does become one with us in our times of weeping and in, in our time of sorrow of, I understand you're going through mm -hmm. this and it deeply hurts me as well, yeah. just as much as it's hurting you right now. This is my friend. This mm -hmm. is someone I love. This is someone I cared for. His life was too young to be taken already. And even at that we've already said that god is omnipotent mm -hmm. and so in that jesus already knows he's going to die on the cross and what that's already like at that point in time so i mean he already knows the pain that everybody's feeling at that moment in time because he's gone through it he died and then rose from the dead already even though he's living at this point in time because god is omnipresent and omnipotent meaning he's already done it but for us humans we haven't seen him do it yet but he already knows what it feels like to have died and what other people do whenever death happens. And I'm sure death has happened in his family as well and other stuff like that. So he empathizes and grieves with us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I wanted to kind of bring out the fact that God is the creator of our emotions in the first place. Emotions aren't something that exhibit only sin or sin nature or sin character, but our emotions are something that have been given to us by God. And we're going to look through a, a couple of passages of scripture where God exhibits emotions. And the first one I just want to kind of talk about is that the creation of time, God's creating man and woman. And uh, this is what he says in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our own, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Wonderful. And then we have First uh, John chapter 4, verse 16. And so we know and really on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Wonderful. And then we have, so this is God is love. Then we have God getting angry, which is in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And then we have God in a joyful situation, which is in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. And then God as peaceful, uh, Psalm 85, verse 8. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Wonderful. And then uh, Galatians 5, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And 
the fruit of the spirit, these are things that bubble up or well up within us out, uh, God pouring himself out of us as human beings, which means that he also incorporates these same emotions. And that is, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So discovering or understanding that God has emotion, how does that make you feel? Or what information does this cause you to have, knowing that God is an emotional God? Like, like not out of control, but that he has emotions. How does that make you feel? Bubbly. <laughs> I feel yancy. 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 Okay. It makes me feel less in the in the wrong for having emotions because uh, some people like whenever you're angry or de yeah depressed or have emotions of deep sadness or guilt or something like that, and uh, people tear you down for having those emotions because oh you shouldn't have you shouldn't be acting like that and all this other stuff. Like specifically anger, I was talking with people about the discussion on anger, and they were all saying how anger is this awful, evil, vile emotion, and that we should we need to control our anger. And then I was like, but is there such thing as like a godly anger, a right, a righteous anger? And knowing that God can get angry just like I get angry over same certain things makes me feel better about like living life and actually showing emotion as try as opposed to trying to hide mm. all my emotions concealing and not letting people know who I really am. Right. Yeah. I'm not Elsa and frozen, right? Conceal, <laughs> yeah. don't feel there are actual emotions there and they've been gifted to me by God himself. Right. Yeah. Anything else? And he's presenting himself as he is, like he's not hiding, oh, you cannot be angry, you cannot be, uh, I can, I'm the God, I cannot be emotional. He's the, like, showing the right thing, I, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, he's perfect, so yeah, he's, he's operating yeah. uh, according to perfect emotions. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Just a follow-up question, discovering and understanding that God has gifted you with emotions, what does that mean for for you and the way you feel about your everyday life. We were kind of getting into this already, and I, I'm just going to continue to preface it with this. Does it encourage you to submit your emotions to him? Uh, does it encourage you that you're not alone? Like in your feelings and your emotions, does it help you understand that God is Emmanuel? He is with me. So when I feel this emotion, he's experienced this emotion also. So therefore he is completely there with me and I'm really not alone. Does it encourage you to that understand that he intimately does know everything about you? Like, is this an encouraging thing or is this a discouraging thing that God is a God of emotion? I find it encouraging because mm -hmm. so many people that have been in my life, uh, there have been those that have been negative when it comes to emotions. Like, you know, you shouldn't have that emotion. Or if you have anger, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which is scripture. But there's more to it than that. And I, as I've matured and as I've gotten older, identifying what causes the anger, what um, brings that out. Mm -hmm. And then also being young and being single, a lot of people would say to me, you know, you shouldn't be so happy. 
you shouldn't express your emotions in this way. And then when I got married and when I began having children, and I remember our firstborn baby, Addison, she would, she would just compact and they would say, you know, you just watch your baby and see how many emotions that your child will go through through a day. And I never thought of it because it like reading things, it would say, if you woke up on the left side of the bed, you're going to have a good day. Or if you woke up on the right side of the bed, you will, you're going to wake up on the right way. So sometimes like, I was like, oh, if I wake up on the right side of the bed and if I flip out on the right side of the bed, I'm going to have a good day today. And none of that, none of that matters, but watching our firstborn baby and how many emotions that she expressed throughout the day. And then I began to watch my life as a 20, three-year-old at that time going, man, I make a lot of expressions throughout the day because I don't always wake up happy. I don't always wake up, um, you know, like, well, I just not feeling it today. You know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, whatever I had to do that day, I needed to put my best foot forward. But then there would be circumstances, there would be disturbances throughout the day that could cause and trigger other emotions that were like, okay, that wasn't good. That wasn't very nice of me to say that. So always like a lot of self-reflection by the end of the day of, well, how could I have done that day better? Well, maybe I can strive to make tomorrow better than today and not allow the day present to uh, detour, you know, to deteriorate me, so to say, of not being able to be mobile for the next day. Hmm. Sure. But watching a baby, I think, expresses a lot of emotions. Like, it helps in life. Like, I never... Because you, you build so much stuff up inside of you that like, well, why are they treating me like that? You know, why are, why are they being so mean to me? Well, why did they say it in that kind of voice? And now we can like overanalyze and overtextualize like we're, well, what is the true meaning of what they're trying to say? And it's just like, they're just talking. Right. Like, come on, just let it be. Can we not just carry on a normal conversation? And it's instead of seeing that there's a hidden agenda behind what we're trying to say. Yeah. And and I don't see Jesus hiding behind a mask in this in this scenario. He is genuinely weeping. He is genuinely sorrowful. He is not made an avatar that is sorrowful in this moment and then he's hiding over here somewhere else behind a curtain saying well, if the people would really trust in me, then they would know that I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like, that's not the way Jesus is operating. God doesn't operate in this way. This is the way man does. Man loves to conceal his emotions and then blame everybody else for the way he feels in that moment and try and place blame and judgment on everybody. And 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 the bottom line is, when the passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 7 says, do not judge lest you be judged, this is the kind of judgment it's talking about. We're talking about the fruit of people and the fruit and the seeds of their emotions in the regard of why do people react in these ways? Sometimes the judgment has to come alone from God exposing the hidden motives of what a person has. And in this moment, John chapter 11, verses 35 and verses 38, when Jesus wept and again is moved with emotions in verse 38, his sorrow is genuine, it is real, and it is exactly the way God is with us in those moments that we're experiencing moments of sorrow. For example, this week, uh, past week, my grandmother, my nani G, she had gotten very sick uh, over the past couple of weeks and she was admitted into the hospital. She had fluid on her lungs and they pulled out like 
almost a gallon or 3.5 liters of water from her lungs in one day. And then they were continuing to remove a thousand uh, uh, milliliters of uh, uh, fluids from her lungs for the next several consecutive days. So she was put into ICU. So I sat down and I was reflecting on this and I was thinking of all of the good times that I had with my Nani G. And I was just uh, very wanted to express myself in a way that uh, very wanted to. I very yourself. wanted to express myself in I a way. Very I wanted to express myself. I wanted to express my emotions in a way that she would understand. And so I wrote a poem. And in that poem, it was all of the good times that we had. It was all of those wonderful moments that we had. And as I'm writing it, I'm not heavily emotional. I'm because I'm thinking so hard about the moments, and I'm re reminiscing over those times that we were together, whether it was playing card games or whether it was sitting around talking or whether it was traveling down the road with my Nani G, whatever it was, uh, those memories were the flood of emotions that I was experiencing as I was writing this poem out. And then I went and read it to my wife. And as I come to the conclusion of it, then I get emotional. That's when I break down in the weeping. That's when I break down in the crying is because all of a sudden, all of those emotions hit me at once. And that's where Jesus is in this moment. He was there experiencing that same emotion with me to think that he would separate himself from me just because it's 2020, I'm here on this earth in a flat in Mahali, Punjab, and Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God, that he's not obviously present with me in the midst of this emotion is a type of selfishness on my part to think that God would leave me alone. God doesn't leave me alone in these moments. He's there with me and he's there present. He's there experiencing that emotion with me and that sorrow is okay. It's okay to experience sorrow. It's okay to be uh, painfully hurt. It's okay to recognize the fact that maybe Nani is going to die, but that's okay. Because she's going to go to heaven because she's a believer in Jesus Christ, and that's okay. So the reality is, is that as we have these emotions, recognizing that Jesus is right there with us is a very important part of our daily life. Back into the scriptures again, Jesus wept. Jesus again shows emotion, verse 35, verse 38. Next, he gives a command. And the command is to remove the stone from the cave that this body of this deceased man, Lazarus, is in. And the reaction of Martha is, but Jesus, there's going to be an odor. Now, death is a tricky thing in religion, whether it be in Israel, it be here in India, or it be where we were born at in the U.S., uh, because people just, they're so finicky about the way they describe or talk about death. It's kind of a scary thing for some people. For other people, they feel like this isn't something that we should be talking about. And other people, it's a part of every single day life. And so death is, is very tricky when we're talking about it. And so you, I don't want to go too deep into the fact that, yes, a man who's been dead for four days is going to have an odor. And within the religion of the Jewish principles that we can find in the Old Testament Touching a dead body was considered unclean. So therefore, if I touch a dead body, I am now unclean, which means that I have to go through a purification ritual in order to be recleaned again so that that way I can enter back into society. So I touch a dead body, I'm unclean, I have to separate myself out, and then I have to go through purification rites 
in order to enter back into normal everyday society, which means there's expenses because now I have to pay a priest. Now I have to get certain products in order to make myself clean, perfumes, et cetera, et cetera. There's a delay because maybe I was going to do something later that week or that day. And now I have to separate myself and isolate myself for a couple of days to do these purification rites. I'm inconvenienced. There's all of these things that if I come across the dead body and I touch it, I am then uh, subject to a hassle. And so when we think about the good story, the parable of the good Samaritan, and you have these men that have walked by a man who's laying in a gutter half dead, and they just kind of basically walk over him. These are the things that are also going through those men's minds. Like, I cannot touch this man because he's half dead. And if he dies while he's in my presence, then I won't be able to continue my duties. And a priest, one of the men that passed by the Good Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan is a priest. He's not even allowed by Jewish law to touch somebody who's dead. So you have all of these things that are going through the people's minds when Jesus says, remove the stone. And so people who regularly work with the dead would be the ones to remove the stone because they're there. And that, that means they're automatically outcasts of all of society. And it's not really much different here in India today. Those that work around the crematoriums, those that work near the rivers and they take care of dead people all the time, they're the outcasts of our society. They're not able to raise up within society. They're, in fact, they're not even looked at as human beings sometimes. And that's exactly the way it is going on here in, in Jesus's day. And Jesus is making a command to remove the stone. But this, so therefore this has a strange appearance to the people, especially to the priests and the religious leaders of, oh, he's going to break a religious commandment. We're going to finally catch this guy. But when it comes to death, how do you see death? What, what is it somebody's dying or somebody's dead or uh, family members dying or dead or one day you're going to die? How does that make you feel? Or what are the, th how do you view death? Memories. This is something that brings you memories. Mm -hmm. Okay. Death is something that's so unfathomable. I, I don't even know what death's going to be like. Not many people do. It just happens. Like, you close your eyes and you don't come back. Or you, <laughs> or like something, you get injured and you just never wake up from that injury. Like, stuff happens, but you don't know you're really dead. Only the people around you know you died. And so death is, is really weird. Like, it's hard to understand. And that's why so many people are afraid of it because it's, a lot of people are afraid of the unknown and death is unknown. They don't know what it's going to be like after death. And it's, you can't plan for it. No, you cannot plan for death. Death Correct. can happen anytime. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we're not guaranteed today and we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Right, exactly. And we try and live like we are, but then out of nowhere, you're dead. Yeah. But you don't know you're dead. Everybody else knows you're dead. Yeah, I mean, it's a complex issue. It's really weird. Right. I, it's really, I don't, I don't even understand it. And like, we've had enough, I've, we've had a lot of near death experience experiences and like injuries and stuff like that. And whenever I usually get to that point, it usually feels like the world slows down, mm. you know, like time stands still, time stands still kind of thing. Like you just pause and it feels like forever, but in reality, it's not, it just feels like 
everything in life has slowed down. My life has never flashed before my eyes, like people usually say happens, but instead, like, it just feels like time stops. Yeah. And I mean, we're not trying to be morbid here. We're not trying to take things out of context or be like disgusting or cruel or anything like that. It's just death is such a normal part of everyday life. True. And it's something that a lot of people are afraid of or fearful of or even experiment into uh, witchcraft and occult practices because of thinking about death. So why as the church, why as Christians should we not also be talking and bringing light to death as well. Jesus overcame death. We see that in this passage of scripture. We've read it already. So therefore, death doesn't have to hold this powerful, dark, uh, evil type of a hold over us anymore because Jesus overcame death. Death is actually a moment where we get to experience joyful life. Mm-hmm. My mom, she took this passage of scripture and embraced it so much. I remember she was in her early 40s and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I want to catchphrase. Like I want to catchphrase when, when people ask me, how am I doing? I don't want to just say, hello, hello. How are you? How are you? How's it going? I'm doing well. She's like, I need my catchphrase. And so in her early 40s, she had given her life to the Lord when she was 35 years of age. Um, she was a practicing witch. So this salvific turnaround of discovering a whole new mom, you know, like eight years later after, you know, her salvific moment of asking Christ Jesus into her heart and soul and reading, reading this passage of scripture, when people asked her, so, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? My mom would say, fantastic. I'm on my way to heaven. Oh, Oh, whoa, whoa. How how do you know? How do you know that? And even to this day in her 70s, people will ask her and she's learned how to say, I'm fantastic on my way to heaven in multiple languages. So even when she was traveling by bus and people would ask her, so how are you doing today? She could say it in Arabic. She could say it in Hindi. She could say it in German. She could say it in French. She could say it in Italian. She could say it in Spanish. So she always learned that catchphrase of how to say that to those that would ask her, how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. And she's like, that's how I want to live life. I'm on my way to heaven. Mm -hmm. And so when people would ask, why how like that why that's so i don't fathom that and she's like i live my moment as if it's the last and i know my place and my security is in him and him alone and i i i love that when i was younger when my my mom still like i said still says that to this day yeah absolutely so i mean death for some people and again not to be morbid not to be uh, overly simplistic either it is a natural part of life. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. Some people attempt to try and avoid at all costs the uh, experience of death. We even have people to this day that are freezing themselves uh, in a status so that that way maybe one day they can be brought back to life. We have the story of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein where uh, you know he puts a man back together again to try and raise him from the dead. So I mean there's these uh, attempts to avoid death because people are so fearful. Another way people look at death is it's something that nobody wants to talk about. It's taboo. So we ignore it as if it's never happening or it's never going to happen or it's not going to happen to me. Or if I talk about death, 
we're so superstitious that we think, oh no, now that's something bad's going to happen to me today because we talked about death. That's another way that some people look at it. Some people look at death as offensive. So therefore, in all of these different things, listen to the emotions that are going through uh, different individuals or maybe even our own mind as, we, as we're discussing death because Jesus is requesting somebody to be obedient, to roll away a stone and to reveal a tomb of a man who's been dead for four days. Those are the very same emotions that are going through the minds of Mary, Martha, and the people that are in Jesus's presence in this moment. And so that takes us to the next part of there's an odor, and that is Jesus requests uh, the stone to be removed, and it's met with obedience. This can look, be looked at as breaking taboos, offensives, uh, perceived notions, perverted rituals. Someone or some someone's multiple people would have had to roll this stone away, and that gets the religious leaders thinking, oh, Jesus is going to touch the dead body, and he's going to be unclean for a couple of days, or he's going to break some kind of religious rule that God had set in the Old Testament and the Levitical laws or something. And this got me thinking about what kind of obedience that I have. Do I really have complete obedience to God when he asks me to do something? What excuses do I give to avoid God's commands for my life and my obedience to adhere to his principles? And it got me thinking, what miracles, if I have made excuses to avoid what God has commanded me to do, what miracles have I missed out on because of my disobedience? And then that got me thinking uh, uh, about another question is, do I think of myself as greater than God that I can ignore him and his commands and ignore the things that he asks me to do and be disobedient? And as a result of all those things, I got to thinking, okay, there's an odor. That's Martha's excuse that she tries to give, but there's going to be an odor. And he's like, Martha, I told you, if you will believe in me, you're going to see the glory of God revealed today. Like, he doesn't say it mean, angrily. He's not shooting her that ugly look, you know, that, that stare, that stank eye kind of a look. He's not giving her that. He just explains to her, he's just probably even weeping as he says it. Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believe in me, you'll see the glory of God today? And it's got me thinking about my life in those moments that he asks me to be obedient to him. He asked me to be obedient to him in the ways of what we just read in Galatians chapter 5, to, to operate daily in love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He, he wants me to, to be that kind of an obedient man. What do you think about this as far as obedience goes? What do you guys think of when it comes to Christ asking for your obedience? Does the odor offend you so much that you're going to be disobedient to God? When Christ asks for help, those men positioned there to roll the tombstone away were obedient in their act of rolling the tombstone away. Yeah. There was no commentary of, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> don't you know that man in there is dead? You know, they were actively obedient. And this is where you see the relationship with Christ. Mm. Christ asks us to do things. He asks he ask us. It's up to us in our obedience if we are to be obedient. Are we willing to roll away the stone no matter what that stone looks like? Are we willing to open up a door and walk through no matter what's behind that door, so yeah. to say? 
if we're to open up a gate, no matter what's behind that gate, are we willing to trust Jesus and to actively go mm. and to actively do and to actively participate in what he has asked us to do? I mean, that act of obedience, whether it smells, whether it's just gut wrenching and you're vomiting, Christ is with you. Yeah. Whether it's a cutesy little lamb that comes out out and there's a birth, you know, and you see the miracle birth of a little lamb and the little lamb just gets up and walks out and it's so cute, you know. There's those moments of life. Active obedience, sometimes easier said than done. I remember. Yeah, definitely easier said than done sometimes. I remember one time I, I was I was here in Mahali. I was in Sector 80 and it was in our home. And uh, your body was deteriorating uh, with a lot of sickness. There was a lot of illness on your body. On my body, yeah. On your body, Matt. And I was so overwhelmed. And I was so busy. It was a busy body. I was doing everything. I was, you know, rising at, you know, what, 4.30 in the, in the morning and unlocking the gate and then making sure our lawn was watered, making sure we had water that morning and, and then, um, and then exercising. And then we had a dog, we walked the dog and then came back and made breakfast for everybody, made sure everybody was up and going by seven o'clock in the morning, made sure that you were taking your medicines at 6.30 and seven, making sure you were getting the, the appropriate diet that you were supposed to have. We had a time of abiding at eight o'clock in the morning. Our studies began at nine o'clock in the morning. You needed another snack at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, we had lunch, we had, you know, then you had more medicine that needed to be distributed. And then there was the groceries that needed to be gotten. There were visitors that were coming in and, and you never knew who was always at our gate. And I would constantly go, 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 go all night till I finally got into the bed and it was two o'clock in the morning. And I went like that for a long time. Yeah. And I remember being in the kitchen and the cabinet door was open and I forgot that I thought I had shut the cabinet door, but I didn't. And I raised up, I was bent down on the ground and I rose up and I went, boom. And I like knocked myself out. I was like, man, that hurt. And I heard a still small voice saying, be still. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not gonna be still, man. That hurt, golly, did you, oh man. And the kids were doing their studies at the table you know, and I, and I hit my head on that cabin again, and I still heard that voice, be still. And I thought, what does this mean? What does this mean to be still? And so I, you know, of course, studied, researched, did anything and everything of what be still. And it didn't happen overnight. But there were priorities that I needed to get straight in my life. Living off of two to three hours of sleep. Not that's enough. ludicrous. Yeah, I was killing myself. Right. I was not being obedient to Christ Jesus. Mm. When it says in his word back in Genesis, that day of Sabbath, that day of rest, I was in sin. And it took so many months to recognize the sin that I was in mm. and to ask God of repentance of Lord, forgive me. For not taking a Sabbath day for of rest. For not taking a Sabbath day of rest. And so that would be my act of disobedience to God be still. Hmm. It wasn't an everyday be still moment. There wasn't, I mean, there, I mean, there's so much that could have been done, 
but I had to do, actively do my part to come alongside with Christ because Christ is already there. Yeah. His hand is there. He's, he's right there with me. He's right here with me on my heart. It was just me taking that step going, I need, I, I need help on this. Yeah. I need to, to get my priorities straight and most in line with God the Father. Yeah, and, and the location of this moment where God spoke to you was, was where? Where was the location at? In the kitchen. Okay, I ask that because it brings me to my second point, which is what we also see in this passage of Scripture, which is prayer. Notice a few things about Jesus in his prayer. First of all, Jesus says that the Father always hears me. He always hears me, and he says, I say this not for myself because I know you always hear me, Father. I say this for the people. And if we pray, this, this shows us that the Father and Jesus are one. The Father always hears Jesus. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three triune, one God. Triune persons, one Godhead. And so when we see this, we also come to the recognition that if we pray to Jesus, then he will stand as an advocate before the Father in intercession on our behalf. And that's exactly what Blair was talking about when she's giving this testimony just a moment ago. And the reason I asked her to note the location, being the kitchen, is because look at the location of Jesus's prayer. Jesus's prayer is in the middle of a graveyard. Jesus's prayer is in front of a tomb. Jesus's prayer is in an unclean place. There's no ritual reason for him to be praying there. This isn't a holy ground. There isn't anything there that should even call his attention to prayer as we think of prayer. But yet he shows us that in his prayer, we can be anywhere and trust in Jesus, pray to him, and he will hear us. He will take that prayer, he will make note of it, and he will advocate for us to God the Father. Secondly, I also want us to notice the emotion. And Blair's testimony, her emotion is exhaustion. Her emotion is uh, whatever was going on in that moment, maybe dizziness and dazed. And Jesus' emotion, he could have been dizzy and he could have been dazed. He was also sorrowful. He's also weeping. I bring that up because I want us to recognize the fact that our emotions do not need to be cleaned up in order for us to pray. So many people think that we need to empty ourselves of every emotion so that that way we can come to prayer. Or we need to put on some kind of facade or some kind of mask. Or if maybe we make this sacrifice, or maybe if we do this kind of thing before we, we have to purify ourselves before we go to the religious place so that that way we can pray. Or if I don't, you know, if I pass a religious place and I don't pray in that moment as I'm passing it, then God will be angry with me. No, none of that stuff is true when it comes to Jesus. Jesus says, the location doesn't matter. Pray to me. Pray to me in your kitchen. Pray to me in your house. Pray to me in the middle of the graveyard if you have some lost one, loved one there. Uh, pray to me if you are in the middle of work. Pray to me while you're driving on the road. It doesn't. Those things don't matter to Jesus. We do not have to be in a specific location in order to offer up prayers to him. And secondly, we don't have to have a specific mindset or emotion that's going on inside of our head at that moment in order for God to actually hear our prayers. He hears our prayers despite our emotions. Jesus then says, Lazarus, come out. 
Wow, what a long prayer. Sometimes we think that God will only hear us if our prayers are really long <laughs> and they sound really pretty. But notice how short Jesus's prayer is. It's just three words, Lazarus, come out. And that's the prayer. And it's like, wait, can it really be done that fast? Can I really have a headache and go, Jesus, take my headache away and the headache go? Yes, absolutely. Can it really be something as simple as Jesus? I don't have a job. Help me get a job. And then all of a sudden I get a job. Yes, it's that easy. Can it really be as easy as I made a mistake? I messed up. God, will you forgive me? He forgives you that fast. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's so amazing that in this prayer, we're taught these things about Jesus. Is there anything else that you notice in the prayer that Jesus gives that, uh, that just encourage you to continue to pray and trust in God for your every need? Through the good, through the bad, through the ugly, he's there. No matter how bad you feel, like you stink, you know, your innards, God loves us through everything mm -hmm. and he's instantly instantly there he never leaves us nor he never forsakes us right he he's a constant yeah. and when man determine determines us as bad or ugly or not good god sees us as good we don't have to fix our own problems before we start trusting in god you know like we don't have to get right with man before we can trust in God. Like some people do say that I, I believe in all that Jesus stuff, but I have to clean up my life before I can trust in Jesus. But in fact, you can't clean up your life on your own. Right. You actually need to trust in Jesus in order to be able to clean up your life. Right. That's right. Right. It's a, it's a togetherness because he shows the things we are to rid out. Yeah, exactly. And I always look at that like a house, you know, and cleaning a home, there's always these little beautiful cobwebs. And I like spiders because they're really good. They bring a lot of good to the home. Lizards bring a lot of good to the home. Ugh. I saw a lizard today. I'm like, okay, you creepy crawly, you stay out, but I know you might come in. And he's a really big one. But anyways, when I think of cleaning a home, I see I see cobwebs that just kind of linger in, in their corners or sometimes in the dark. There will be uh, cobwebs or teeny tiny bugs. And it's like, where did you come from? And I look at that in my heart. There are things that are deep down that are inside my heart that I have not yet yielded to Christ. Mm -hmm. And Christ gently shows me, hey, mm -hmm. when are you going to yield this to me? Yeah, when yeah. are you going to give this to me? Oh, wow, is that still there? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that was deep down inside of me still. Yeah, here, here it is. And, and mm -hmm. then... May I pray, may I never go back to that. Yeah. But having that togetherness with Christ Jesus, he, he's always constantly showing, always revealing himself of, Blair, you need to work at this. Blair, that, you know, and that could be coming through verbal, mm -hmm. you know, like when I'm speaking, it could, it could come through a verbal conversation that I'm having with someone like, ooh, where is that ugliness coming from? It could be sometimes, I remember there was a time where I was catching myself, I was frowning all the time. And I'm like, I'm not a frowny person. I'm genuinely someone who really smiles a lot. Like I was known for my smile at a, such a young age, like, oh, here comes Smiley. You know, I, I was always known for that. But there was a period in my life where someone was like, 
where'd your smile go? Yeah. And I thought, where did it go? The dead. <laughs> it came back. Okay, go ahead. Well, whenever mom was talking about cleaning a house and how there are still some stuff that's left alone, it's not like whenever we ask Jesus into our life that just everything's clean automatically. Right. Like it's up to us to yield to him. But in that moment, it's not God immediately telling us, you need to clean this up right now. Everything in your life you need to clean up immediately right now. It takes time. It takes building a relationship with a person. Mm-hmm. You don't automatically become best friends like in the first five minutes and you know everything about each other. Now, Jesus may know everything about us, but he's still. we still have to warm up to him. We still have to get to know Jesus for him to start pointing out things to us. Hey, I noticed this was still in your life. Are you ready to yield that to me? And this mm-hmm. person's like, oh, yeah, I do. I haven't yielded that yet. But it you you can't always do that whenever you first meet a person or first have a relationship. Like Jesus doesn't immediately tell you, you need to get rid of everything right now. Right. All the sins in your life, you need to do it right now. Yeah, he's cleaned us and washed away our sins. But that doesn't mean we've given him up. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. But we sometimes forget that and still contemplate on it and stay on it and try and continue doing certain sins. And then he has to reveal that to us. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time for things to be taken away. Absolutely. And things to go away. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like mold. <laughs> you know, Jesus is the bleach. And the sin is the mold, and it sometimes you squirt the bleach on the mold and you scrub it, and it doesn't always disappear immediately because we didn't have enough trust in that mm-hmm. in God in Jesus. So you have to keep spraying the bleach on coat after coat and scrubbing away at the mold, and God will remove it from us. So Jesus is specific in his prayer with who is to be raised from the dead. Some commentators say if Jesus didn't say the name Lazarus, but just said, come out, every dead person in that graveyard would have come to life. (laughs) And you think about that authority that Jesus speaks with, there's truth to that kind of a statement. Mm -hmm. It obviously is uh, hyperbole. It's also obviously something that, you know, is funny to to think about if Jesus would have said, uh, you know, not Lazarus's name, everybody would have been raised from the dead. But this is true of how authoritative Jesus is. Jesus is is not in the place of an unclean priest touching the dead, but in the place of a priest examining somebody who's been recovered. Think about that. In the Bible, in the Levitical laws, it says that a priest could not be around the dead and that they had to avoid them. And in the moment when Jesus said, remove the tomb, on the face, it looked like Jesus is breaking a command of God himself. And instead, what Jesus is doing is not that. What Jesus is actually doing is is he's getting ready to perform a priestly duty of examining somebody who's been healed from a sickness or a disease. The disease and sickness just happens to be death in this case. And Jesus is now examining a completely whole and recovered body. And so what the priests and what the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought they're going to catch Jesus, Jesus totally flipped it on its head and turned it to something completely different. It got me thinking about Genesis chapter 22. 
Abraham, Father Abraham, is called by God to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him on a mountain. And God has never asked for human sacrifice. And God, in fact, in his law said he would never require human sacrifice. And yet here we see Father Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son. And yet that's not what the story is really about. The story or the history of what Abraham did on that mountain that day is he took his son, he bound his son, he was getting ready to sacrifice him. And God said, I see your heart, Abraham, and your heart is pure and holy before me. You are a righteous man. You are a faithful man. Do not kill your son, Isaac. I have provided a ram in the thicket for you. And the same thing is happening here. Jesus is saying, Remove the stone, there's a dead man. And people are thinking, oh no, Jesus is gonna break the commandment. He's gonna break the Levitical law. And instead what Jesus is doing is not breaking the Levitical law by touching something that's dead or unclean, but instead Jesus is examining somebody who's made whole. Isn't that beautiful? That the sisters obeyed Jesus. Mary and Martha obeyed Jesus and they have the tomb opened. Isn't it a beautiful thing that knowing that they could be ridiculed and have to re-go through purification rites, they still submit themselves to trust in Jesus and have the stone removed? Isn't it amazing that when they open the tomb so that the priests above all priests, the high priest Jesus, can inspect their dead brother and a miracle happens and their dead brother is no longer dead, but he is alive completely healed of whatever made him sick and die in the first place. The faithfulness of Mary and Martha is seen, and so is the glory of God in this moment. Have I ever allowed my initial thoughts of a person get in the way of a potential relationship? I have. Yeah. I, I know I have. Mm -hmm. Have I ever allowed my initial thoughts of a request from God to get in the way of whether I'm going to be obedient or disobedient to I him? Have. Yes. I know I have. Am I willing to repent? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And am I willing to trust in God? Yes. Lord, today may my emotions be in check and aligned with you. May my obedience be to you alone. No matter the result, may I continue to submit myself to you and your way. May my prayers be offered regularly, no matter my location or my emotions. I want to see you glorified in earth as it is in heaven. Mallory, will you pray? Thank you, Jesus, for this day and every single day, and that we will have a great day today and everybody will be safe and that everybody will be glad that their family is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.